Hello, everyone, and welcome to the first episode of the HSAC podcast. For those of you that don't know, we are the Harvard College Sports Analytics Collective, a group of undergraduate students dedicated to the quantitative and statistical analysis of sports. We break down the numbers and advanced metrics behind all of your favorite teams and players trying to bring useful insights to the game. I'm David Arco, a freshman at Harvard College, and today I'm lucky to be joined by three great guests and fellow HSAC members, Ella Papanik, Danny Blumenthal, and Tucker Boyton. Ella is a past president of HSAC and is currently a senior studying statistics. This season, she has been working in the Cleveland Browns research and strategy department, helping them end their 18-year playoff drought. Prior to joining the Browns, her research focused on draft behavior and betting algorithms. In addition to sports, she is also the captain of the Harvard chess team and enjoys examining chess from a statistical perspective. You can follow her on our Twitter at ChexMatrix, that's C-H-E-X Matrix. Danny is also a past president of HSAC and is currently a senior studying psychology and economics. He's written an abundance of analytical articles ranging from the NFL draft to fantasy football to analyzing MLB and NBA payroll efficiency. You can check out all of his articles on our blog at harvardsportsanalysis.org. And lastly, Tucker is a junior studying economics, and he recently founded nflindex.com, a web app for searching the NFL stat R play-by-play database. He has also announced Harvard football, hockey, and basketball games for the student radio. He was also a student manager for the Harvard hockey team. You can follow him on his Twitter at Tucker underscore TNL and check out his new website and database at nflindex.com. Thank you all for coming today. If you wouldn't mind just saying where you guys are all calling in from today. I am currently in Cambridge. I'm living off campus for the semester, but doing virtual school. So Cambridge, Massachusetts, nearby Harvard campus. I'm in New York right now doing virtual school this semester. I'm on campus in Cambridge. I figured I'd try to do my last semester at Harvard on campus. Perfect. Yeah, I think we'll just jump jump right into it. And first, I'll start by recapping the AFC and NFC championship games, because that'll give us, you know, some context heading into the Super Bowl. There's also some interesting stuff to talk about there. So first up, uh, we have the AFC championship with the Kansas City Chiefs defeating the Buffalo Bills 38-24. to It was a little tight at first. The Bills uh, went up 9-0 at the end of the first quarter. But then, you know, in typical Patrick Mahomes fashion, the Chiefs scored 21 unanswered, and the Bills never got within a single score from there. Obviously, the Bills, you know, were a very successful team this year. And uh, I know, Danny, you recently wrote an article about the success of the Bills offense, particularly from an analytical perspective. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what made the Bills so good this year and then what didn't work for them in this game against the Chiefs and how were the Chiefs able to stop the Bills offense? So the first thing that was really stood out in this year compared to past seasons for the Bills was the addition of Stefan Diggs. Diggs was obviously an outstanding wide receiver, leading the league in catches and yards. But in addition to Diggs, Buffalo had a very deep receiving core. One unsung hero was rookie Gabriel Davis. He was an outstanding deep threat, ranking third in the league in deep touchdown catches. And because of this deep receiving core, Buffalo was able to play in 10 personnel. That's four receivers, one running back at the second highest rate in the NFL. And doing so enables teams to spread out the defense and create favorable matchups, which facilitated easy completions for Josh Allen this year. One other thing that the Bills did to improve their offense was Brian Dable, the offensive coordinator, started calling a lot more play action passes 
after ranking 18th in the league in 2019. They ranked fourth in play action passing rate in 2020 and led the league in play action passing yards, especially in the divisional round against the Ravens. This was effective, even as they never ran the ball in the first half. They still completely fooled the Ravens on a play action play to open the second half, and that led to their offensive touchdown. So what, so what didn't work for Kansas City against Kansas City was that Kansas City had a really deep secondary consistently pulling out five, six, seven defensive backs. And so they were able to match up with the Bills' spread offense. I feel like, yeah, at this point in the season, it's pretty hard to have too much of an element of surprise. A lot of teams have sort of shown their full playbook for the most part, at least by the time of the conference championship. So it's, it's, you've kind of established your character. I'm not sure the, the element of surprise was necessarily uh, the biggest issue here. I also think while there were favorable formations and situations for Josh Allen, including play action, which has been shown in the past to, to really allow quarterbacks to open up the offense that maybe haven't in the past, I don't think you can undersell the the importance of Josh Allen's maturation as a passer. He improved vastly by around seven percentage points in completion percentage over expected. So I agree that, you know, the deep threats and drafting and team building um, by the front office was a huge piece and Dable's play calling, obviously. It wasn't like Allen was only making wide open throws and he had been markedly inaccurate in the past and became one of the most accurate passers in the league in 2020. So I think that's a big piece of that Buffalo Bills offense and not, you know, the the shady McCoy era where it was turn around and hand it off, you know, three times in a row. They weren't doing that anymore. And that's a credit to Dable and a belief that Allen could mature and become the passer that he did. And obviously it, it paid huge dividends for them. I don't think there's any shame in, in losing to the Chiefs, especially not this Chiefs team. Yeah, I think that's the great points there. So this kind of gets in, I was kind of getting at it with the last question, but this kind of gets into like, how do we evaluate how much in this particular game the offense is not doing well and the defense is doing like Yeti said with the formations and things like that. So I guess, Ella, what are some key like metrics or statistics that people can look at that can separate what the offense is not doing well versus what the defense is doing well to kind of separate the two performances? For me, I, I tend to look at player grades provided by PFF for that. Um, I think that's a great way to sort of disentangle those effects. And of course it, it is rare that you'll find games where a, a certain team's offense grades very highly and the opposing team's defense grades very highly. But I think that is one of the best metrics available to disentangle those effects. So in this game in particular, I think the standard matchup of the Chiefs offense versus the Bills defense played out somewhat similarly to what would be expected. The Bills had their worst coverage grade of the season, but that is something that is prompted by facing Tyreek Hill and Travis Kelsey and something that a lot of teams experience in that situation. But I think the more interesting matchup is the Bills offense versus the Chiefs defense. In this particular game, the Bills had their worst offensive grade of the season. Specifically, they struggled in the passing game. Josh Allen recorded his worst passing grade of the season. That's something that would was not necessarily widely predicted before the game. I, I would say one thing that to look at specifically to, I guess, control for the strength of the offense versus the strength of the defense is looking at pass breakups versus drops um, and like well-designed runs versus missed tackles and kind of assigning responsibility there. And so in this game, there definitely were some ugly drops by Bill's receivers, but in general, um, Josh Allen's receivers were not getting the separation that they typically get. And 
even via next-gen stats, you can look at like receiver separation metrics and you can see that some of his receivers who like Cole Beasley and Stephon Diggs, who consistently record separation that is much above league average, were only slightly above league average. And some of his other receivers were significantly below league average this game. So while he did have some issues of his inaccuracy returning, there also were not as many options for him to go to as he typically has. Yeah, I think that that's also brings up a great point. Just like the, the premise of the question is particularly difficult because the success of the offense is predicated on putting the defense in uncomfortable situations and vice versa. Most of the stats that we use to measure offensive and defensive performance are almost entirely outcome-based. And that outcome has to do with so many different factors, you know, 22 different players on the field on two different teams. And so from a probability perspective, trying to fix one is is nearly impossible because, you know, they depend so so deeply on each other. One thing that I really like is expected completion percentage. And obviously this is just from a passing perspective. And NFL Fastar has expected completion percentage model and there's a next gen stats expected completion percentage model. I think ESPN has one as well. So you're, you'll get different numbers from different places, but the idea being what percent of passes in this set of situations would an average player be expected to complete? Obviously, you still have the issue like Ella's talking about pass breakups and drops, and maybe that can add some context. But by and large, you know, under completing relative to expectation is a, would be an offensive failure in most cases. And then just looking purely at the level of expected completion percentage, that can tell you, okay, how difficult are the situations that the defense is forcing the offense into? Because expected completion percentage, for example, is going to be lower on targets with less separation, with pressure on the quarterback, with you know more people in coverage. So all of these factors that play into expected completion percentage can give us kind of a snapshot of, okay, what is the difficulty level? Again, you have massive caveats with okay, well, maybe the quarterback's just making dumb decisions and throwing into tight windows. But again, you're just trying to chip away at those other factors. And I think expected completion percentage is, is one of the numbers that can give you a general idea of the difficulty of throws that are being made, regardless of outcome. Well, think about also in the publicly available sort of suite of NFL and football analytics, one of the most popular tools or descriptive statistics, not necessarily predictive, is expected points added. Basically, for those who don't know, it's sort of what is the value of your position on the field from one play to the next. You see the problem even in that, considering that the EPA for an offense is just the negative EPA for the defense. So whatever the offense is gaining, it's taking away from the defense, which just sort of illustrates the problem. As far as we've come, our best tools, and of course, this is just sort of among publicly available metrics, but our best tools still are just sort of like the inverse of the defensive value is the offensive value. Yeah, definitely interesting. So much that we've figured out, but still so much more to find out. So I guess wrapping this up, I guess just quickly, what are our predictions for the Bills next year? They're going to regress and maintain that performance? I think that as good as Josh Allen was this year, it does seem as though if we take a longer term perspective, Looking back at his previous two years, there's a little bit of space for regression. He's probably not going to fall back into, you know, 32nd, 33rd best quarterback in the league like he was uh, rookie year, but he probably 
might not be in the MVP conversation next year. I think there's a little bit of space where he's going to fall back to earth. Yeah, I would say I don't see the Bills being Super Bowl contenders next year, but I do think that they will be a strong team. I think a lot of their failure in this AFC championship game was due to the Chiefs coverage. The Chiefs coverage grades have been on an upswing towards the end of the season and throughout playoffs. And I think that that's something you can't neglect. And they faced very difficult coverage in this game. And I think that that's not something that they're going to be consistently seeing throughout the course of the season. And I think Josh Allen's rapport with Stephon Diggs and Cole Beasley only stands to improve over the course of the off season. Yeah, I agree with all that. And I think while there are some teams that are in less than ideal contract situations, the Bills have done a tremendous job building their team sort of from the bottom up. And most of their important players, if not all, are at least under contract through next season. They're keeping all their tight ends, all their important wide receivers, most of their offensive linemen, many of their defenders. So I think they stand to be good again. And so prediction from one year to the next is that's what makes it so difficult. There's just so much noise and variance in the outcomes. So playoff team, I would guess, but you know, I don't know. Can you, can you recreate the Josh Allen magic? Do you believe in, in true improvement or is it just basically noisy change over year over year? I think they're going to be good again. I don't know that they're going to be sort of in the AFC championship game, but we'll see. I agree with what all all you guys said. Pretty much, I think, exhausted that game. And now we can move on to the NFC Championship between the Green Bay Packers and the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Personally, I really thought that this was going to be the year that Aaron Rodgers was going to get back to the Super Bowl. Going into the game, 538 gave the Packers a 63% chance to advance to the Super Bowl. But unfortunately, he ran up against probably the greatest playoff QB, if not even playoff athlete of all time, in Tom Brady. So now Aaron Rodgers is 1-4 and four in NFC Championship games, while Tom Brady is 9-4 and four in Conference Championship games. He's technically undefeated in NFC Championship games, be it one game. So I think the obvious moment to talk about in this game from an analyst's perspective is Green Bay Packers head coach Matt LaFleur's decision to kick a field goal instead of go for it on fourth and goal from the eight-yard line. So to give some context, Green Bay was down 23-31, to 31, so eight points. They would have needed the touchdown and the two-point conversion to tie the game. There was two minutes and nine seconds remaining, and the Packers had all three timeouts. According to Ben Baldwin's fourth down model, the probabilities um, if the Green Bay Packers had gone for the touchdown of winning were 13%, and if they kicked the field goal were 9%. But personally, to me, this just, even though it's a 4% difference, it just seemed like the complete you know, wrong call to, to kick the field goal there. Say you do go for the touchdown and you miss, you're basically in the same scenario if you kick the field goal. You still have to get three stops, the Tampa Bay is on their own nine. You have to get a three and out, get the ball back, drive down the field, score a touchdown. Whereas the field goal, it seems like you have one shot at getting that touchdown. Whereas if you go for it on fourth and goal, you have that fourth and goal chance, and then you have another chance. And so it just, to me, it seemed like the wrong call. So even though the probabilities are very similar, this was kind of interesting. And I guess that's a long-winded way of you know getting to the question is, can you offer any insight to why the probabilities are so are so similar, you know, 13% and 9%. Do you disagree with them? And you probably don't disagree with them because these are very like sound. This is Ben Baldwin's model. And then, so do you think in the end, do you think LaFleur made the wrong call? Yeah. So I would say one thing to think about is the marginal impact of a touchdown or a score. When you have probabilities near 
zero or one, the individual impact of a particular play is not going to swing win probability as significantly. So consider a game where you have a 50% win probability and someone scores a touchdown. That's going to have a bigger impact than that same team scoring a touchdown from a a situation where they have a 99% win probability. That is only true because there's a single percent left to go towards 100. So I think it's definitely important to assess decisions on the margins different than decisions at the beginning of the game. And one way to think about win probability in these kinds of situations is on the scale of the win probability you currently have. So when you compare 13% and 9% relative to each other, that's a significant ratio. You know, you're increasing your win probability by only, or by almost 50% by going for it. So I think I think going for it is the correct decision. I, I know the analytics community was screaming about this on Twitter. And I think that I I did wonder sort of what was the rationale behind it. I, it could have been something to do with clock management, although I, I do find it a hard decision to defend. Well, so when I was watching the game, I said to myself when I saw it that I actually think it's closer than people, you know, the analytics community loves to yell and scream about fourth downs and two point conversions and among other things. But I think a lot of the times the thing that we underrate is the difficulty of converting a two-point conversion. You know, you you were not necessarily assuming a two-point conversion. If you go for it, that's a whole other, let's say, 50% chance. And in kicking the field goal, you avoid a situation where you need to convert a two-point conversion. So let's, let's assume all other, you know, outcomes are fixed and you still have that 50% swing of, can you convert that two-point conversion? And you actually would have to do it twice when you're down by 16. So I think a lot of times what gets underrated is the fact that even though two-point conversions are often the right decision and something that we you know preach as, as good statistical approach to the game of football, they're still hard to convert. You know, an eight-point lead is significantly different win probability-wise than a seven-point lead. We, we call them one-possession games or one-touchdown games, but that really is a big gap. And you had to convert two two-point conversions, so kicking the field goal there. But yeah, I think Ella's context that at the same time, that's sort of a pet peeve of mine is sort of the, the percent versus percentage point discussion around win probability models, right? Like you see the display that it's only a four percentage point difference, but it's actually a 50% difference in overall win probability. And it's a little thing, but it's still very important because it's the question is, what are you going to do to improve your position from where you are right now? Not just in general, considering nothing else, how many win probability points are you increasing? So- Yeah, I think that's a great point also about two-point conversions specifically that, you know, nobody knows what two-point conversion packages a particular team has available to run except for the coach of that team. And so we can't necessarily assess the decisions that that coach is making based on the packages that they have at their fingertips. And and I I would say using league-wide rates is, is probably somewhat reductive in those kinds of situations because success probabilities do vary significantly from team to team on that. I definitely agree with what Alan Tucker is saying. The two-point conversion rate is particularly significant in this situation. I know the Packers previously in the game against the Bucks had just scored a short touchdown pass to Devontae Adams on a one or two-yard touchdown pass, which probably would have been a similar situation to their two-point two-point conversion plays. Right, uh, if they so, only had three packages or something like that, then they use one up. Yeah. And exactly, if they if they feel as though their two point conversion rate 
might be a little bit lower with their second or third best option, then that could potentially make a little bit of a difference in terms of the win probability model. And I guess one other thing to think about the win probability model question is whether teams are kicking an onside kick afterwards or just booting it all the way down the field and hoping for a three and out. And particularly in the past, it was a lot easier to recover an onside kick because you could stack the field. Whereas in this year, it's obviously been a lot harder. Buffalo, Buffalo accepted. But because of that, the win probability might be even even lower on field goals than we might uh, had they kicked a field goal and then hope for an onside kick. The win probability might have been even lower than we would expect had we used longer term data. Yeah, I also that you you reminded me of something a quote from Rogers I think the day after the game where he was saying basically they asked him you know did you think you were going to go for it on fourth down and I don't have the quote verbatim but in so many words he basically said I didn't run you know I targeted Adams in the end zone instead of running for the pylon because I thought we were going to get a fourth down chance and to me that was just such a cop out because you still would have improved your chances of converting a fourth down if you set yourself up closer to the goal line. In fact, it might make more sense to run for four or five yards and slide if you knew you were going for fourth down. So I think that sort of got convoluted in in the whole discussion about what should the fourth down decision have been. And so I, I don't think it's like, I don't think that's a small detail at all yardage wise. I mean, eight yards is a lot to convert on a fourth down and to cut that in half or more would have been really significant. Yeah, that's very, that's good. It's into one thing that I, I kind of thought about when trying to break down this decision was there's like the analytics dimension, which we kind of just exhausted and talked about the personnel, which also factors into the analytics, the coach's gut feeling, whatever that is. And then like the, this is not that important, but the public perception, I guess, or how much flack he's going to get. So those four things. So analytically, it seemed like the wrong call personnel wise, it seemed like the wrong call. You have Aaron Rodgers. And you're going to hand it over to your defense, who's kind of been struggling. Um, so that's like the wrong call. The gut is no right or wrong. It's up to the coach. And that's kind of what he went with. That's how LaFleur justified it after the game. He's felt confident in his defense. And then the public perception, it seems like most of the people really disagree with this call. So it seems like he got it wrong on like three out of four things. So I don't know. To me, it just seemed like it cost him the season. But who knows? Well, I think that concludes our very first episode We hope you enjoyed our discussion of the AFC and NFC Championship games, which will give us some context heading into Super Bowl 55. The stage is set with the Kansas City Chiefs facing the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Again, you can follow Ella on her Twitter at ChexMatrix, C-H-E-X Matrix. Read all of Danny's articles on our website and follow Tucker on his Twitter at Tucker underscore TNL and check out his new database at NFLIndex.com. If you have any questions or would like to get in contact, check out our website at harvardsportsanalysis.org or follow us on Twitter at harvard underscore sports. I'm David Arco, and once again, thank you for listening, and we'll see you in the next episode for our Super Bowl preview.